Welcome to the podcast series from the Decision-Making Voices from the Field Leadership Seminars at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. Good afternoon. My name is Uchenna Okoye, and I am a Zuckerman Fellow and an MD-MPH candidate here at the Harvard School of Public Health. It is with great honor that I introduce this afternoon's distinguished guest, Dr. Harvey Feinberg. Dr. Feinberg has served as the president of the Institute of Medicine since July of 2001 and was inducted into the Institute in 1982. As president of the Institute of Medicine, Dr. Feinberg oversees numerous boards, forums, and roundtables in providing objective, unbiased, and expert advice in the nation's most pressing issues on health and healthcare, ranging from vaccine safety and healthcare quality to prevention and management. Dr. Feinberg's academic career has been dedicated to the fields of health policy and medical decision making. His past research has focused on the process of policy development and implementation, the evaluation and use of vaccines, and the assessment and dissemination of medical innovations. Dr. Feinberg has received numerous honorary awards and degrees. The most recent is from Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health, which awarded Dr. Feinberg the highest prize in public health, the Frank A. Calderon Prize, presented to an individual who has made a transformational contribution to the field. Dr. Feinberg is truly a Harvard native. He received his bachelor's from Harvard College, MD from Harvard Medical School, Master's in Public Policy from the Kennedy School of Government, and PhD in Government from Harvard's Graduate School of the Arts and Sciences. Dr. Feinberg served as, a de as the dean here at the Harvard School of Public Health for 13 years. Lastly, I would like to share a quote from Dr. Feinberg from a 2011 Harvard Kennedy School article that may speak to many of us. He stated, I am a doctor. There is a special satisfaction in the one-on-one -on -one relationship you have with patients that is unlike anything else from a professional point of view. But it's still one person at a time. With the work we're doing at the Institute of Medicine, we have the chance to affect the lives of millions of people. We thank you, Dr. Feinberg, for speaking with us, but also for your wisdom, your leadership, and most importantly, for your example. Before I turn the seminar over to Dean Frank, please join me in welcoming our speaker, Dr. Harvey V. Feinberg. Thank you, Chena. Thank you very much. And good afternoon to everyone. And welcome to this uh, series, which we call uh, Decision-Making Voices from the Field. And the name says everything. It's about understanding how leaders make decisions. Uh, we are delighted today uh, to welcome Harvey Feinberg back to Harvard. Uh, as you've heard, he's the legendary dean of Harvard School of Public Health for 13 years, provost of Harvard University, actually defining the role of the provost, uh, and uh, really an accomplished uh, leader, and currently as president of the Institute of Medicine. Um, this uh, session is being webcast worldwide. Uh, since we started this series, literally hundreds of thousands of people have watched the various uh, programs, and I'm sure we'll have a, a wide uh, viewership for, for today as well, and I hope that our online viewers will enjoy the interaction as much as all of those who are here in the room uh, will do so. Here uh, we have mostly students, faculty, and senior leadership fellows from 
the Harvard School of Public Health, joining us um, today. Um, Dr. Feinberg is a very special person because he actually brings uh, a lot of wisdom to the theme of this uh, series. Um, and he's going to be reflecting uh, on, on, the, on issues of, of uh, uh, decision making, both individual and social decision making among health professionals. But he is truly, a, 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 in his academic life, a recognized leader in the study of decisions. That's his own field of work, decision making as a field of work. Uh, in addition, he himself has had to make major decisions in the various leadership positions he has occupied. And today, he um, is the president of an organization whose mission, the Institute of Medicine, is to inform decision making, to, to allow decision makers to make enlightened decisions. So um, he brings a unique perspective from all of these angles. So I'd like to, to get us started before we open it up for questions from the audience. Um, uh, Harvey, by asking you to give us an example or two of um, decisions that you have personally have found challenging um, to make. Um, how hard is it to make decisions and, and why? And you know, bringing those three lenses, uh, I, I think uh, your reflections will be very, very valuable. Well, thank you so much, Julio. I, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is for me to be here with you, with our students, and particularly back here at the Harvard School of Public Health. I feel a little bit like an exotic plant that's being repotted in its native soil uh, when I return. And uh, it feels very good to be in such uh, wonderful surroundings and to have good friends uh, here. Uh, I will tell you, uh, in thinking about this question of decision making, I was uh, reflecting on a one what may seem like a rather trivial decision when I was a dean. Uh, if you go downstairs, uh, you'll notice in the main uh, a cafeteria area, there's a piano. There wasn't always a piano there. It was a time we did not have a piano. But we made a decision at a certain point in my deanship that we were going to acquire a piano. And we had a little committee of student musicians and a few faculty, and I, of course, since I was interested in the piano, uh, as the committee to choose the piano. And uh, one day, we actually had a little expedition uh, where we had a group of the students and I were driving to the factory where the piano was, was being made at that time, uh, Falcone Factory in, in a different part of Massachusetts. And so uh, there was a lot of discussion about uh, which piano and the kind of features we were looking for and the qualities in the piano. But on the way back, uh, after we'd made the decision, one of the students uh, said to me, similarly to the way you started, uh, Julio, she said, uh, you specialize in making these decisions, thinking about decisions. Do you always follow the dictates of the formal analysis of decisions in making your own choices? And I said, of course as long as it feels right. <laughs> and I think this is really the key. Uh, making good decisions, I believe, is partly intellectual and partly emotional. Uh, it's partly knowing what you believe the evidence shows and also gauging that against your values and what you think is right and also against what you think you can accomplish. Because very often, 
choices and decisions, even if you think you have the authority to make them in a leadership role, you really don't have the complete authority. I was reminded uh, of the wisdom of Richard Neustadt, who was a great student of the American presidency, a professor uh, here at Harvard, but before that at Columbia University. And he wrote a book uh, called Presidential Power. And it was catapulted into the popular mind when then-candidate Kennedy, uh, as a candidate for the presidency, was photographed clutching this book, Presidential Power, to his bosom as he was boarding a plane. And everyone then said, what is that book? Too bad his hand was covering the name of Neustadt, but people <laughs> eventually got to the uh, author and the, and the book. And this book was uh, really a break with the past because every other study of the American presidency and the power of the presidency, the decision-making authority of the president, always started with Article II of the Constitution of the United States, enumerating the powers of the president and what the president could do. Neustadt, who had been in the White House uh, way back in the, even the Truman administration, had come to a very different view of the presidency. And he said, essentially, presidential power is the power to persuade. And he said, rather than what we all had been taught in grade school about the United States government as separation of powers, he said it's separate branches sharing powers. And really this idea that leadership and decision-making is a large part persuasion, I think is a pretty good model whether you are in a group or leading a school or leading a university or leading a business or leading anywhere. So how do you persuade? And what does it mean to be uh, persuasive? I can tell you there's one faculty member uh, here at the Harvard School of Public Health, I won't divulge the identity to protect the guilty, but the, the, this faculty member once observed that in his view, consensus building was that we will keep talking until you agree with me. <laughs> and uh, that's, a good, that's a good philosophy as long as you have an inexhaustible source of time and, and you can uh, keep going indefinitely. But really, persuasion is about understanding, in the first instance, common interests, shared values, and making the case in a way that is persuasive. Now, it's not easy for any of us even to persuade ourselves, much less to be persuaded by another. Uh, let me ask you, just to reflect for a moment, when was the last time on anything important to you that you actually changed your mind? When did you ever change your mind about something important to you that you can think about and remember? For most of us, it's pretty hard even to think of one example. And yet, in public health or in leadership, all the job is about leading people to come to fresh ways of looking at the world, fresh ways of understanding, fresh ways of doing new insights, new choices, new decisions. So 
One thing that I've learned in my study of decision making, which I devoted most all of my academic career to looking at decisions from what you would call a rational point of view, trying to analyze the pros, the cons, the achievements, the limitations, the risks, the costs, the benefits, all the things that you're taught in classes about analyzing decisions. But there's an entirely different school of work and understanding, not about how people should make decisions, but about how people actually do make their choices. This is a part of the behavioral economics, the psychology of choice and decision making, uh, pioneered particularly by people like Kahneman and Tversky. And they reveal that many of our choices are not really grounded in the same principles that we would like to think ought to guide our choices from a rational point of view, from a point of view of what the real advantages and drawbacks are. And so a big challenge for leadership and something I think about a lot is how do you reconcile what you think should be done with how you recognize people actually will make their choices. And I've come to believe myself that when we as students of science or uh, lovers of evidence condition ourselves time and again to adhere to the facts and to set aside the anecdote, the story, the one-off case, because it's not evidence. You know, the plural of anecdote is not evidence. <laughs> Still, we need to simultaneously be guided by where we want the choice to be, which is the rational part, and how we get there, which can be appealing to people through stories, through identification, through emotion, and not be afraid to use the tools of the storyteller and the reporter uh, and the communicator to accomplish the goals that are otherwise based on evidence grounded in science and we believe the right thing to do. And this uh, is not easy, uh, but I think if we can pull together the best of both the direction of where we should go and uh, how to get there, how to persuade, then I think uh, as a leader you have a chance to accomplish more than if you are stuck only on the evidence and science, in which case you accomplish less, or devoted entirely to the emotion and personal appeal, in which case you may accomplish more, but maybe the wrong things. <laughs> That's very insightful. Um, you know, th this is uh, incredibly useful because it, th this series came out of um, the demand from our own students. And Natalie Myers, the president of the student government, is here with us. Uh, they, most of them will go out into the world and be faced with making decisions. So understanding the, the, these multiple dimensions and of course the, the power of emotion for the persuasive part, not just the making of decisions, but then using the authority of a position to actually persuade others. Yes. It's, I think it's a great point. But, but let me ask you uh, just a quick follow-up. I mean, you had this very varied career, as in the quote that China was reading, you are a physician, then you decided to 
go and look at societal problems and got a PhD in, 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 in public policy from the Kennedy School. Um, you, you, you've been in multiple roles and now at a position where you are actually not just very close and witnessing in Washington decision making, but actually shaping that through some of the reports and the convening authority of the IOM. In, in all of these positions, making decisions, you know, from the piano to, you know, uh, m many other uh, um, decisions, has there been, do you, do you find a principle, a unifying principle? Is there something between poor reason, pure reason, the evidence side, and uh, emotion that one could call a series of principles that also shape that? And is, is there such a principle or a series of principles that you have found that would apply to many of the decisions mm -hmm. that you have taken in different settings? It's a very, uh, it's a very good question. I, I, would, I would begin maybe by reflecting on what I like about my current position. Because as some of you know, the Institute of Medicine is part of our national academies. It's a uh, freestanding, it's an independent body, but it has a charter from the U.S. Congress to give advice, and its purpose is to help the country to make better choices. So what I love to tell people is that I am based in Washington, and my only job responsibility is to tell the truth. <laughs> and you know you can sleep very well. Right. At night. And it's, part, it's a partial answer to your question. I think a principle is you a principle is you want to be truthful to both yourself and to others. So you want to be true to what you believe and you also want to be uh, truthful as a, as a guiding principle, as a way of protecting the only real assets you have, whether you're an academic or a leader or an advisor, and that is your integrity, your credibility, the expectation that you will be telling the truth based on evidence guided by facts. And if you can start with that principle, then I think uh, many other good things can follow. Another that I would say is uh, listening. You know, the majority of persuasion is not talking. The majority of persuasion is listening. So being an astute listener is very, very important. I'm often reminded of something that my father told me, which is, you seldom learn very much while you are talking. <laughs> and that's a pretty good lesson also. So being a good listener, being especially if you are of an academic background and grew up in a family that, with your sibs and uh, uh, lots of uh, vying for attention and position, it's very important not to feel you have to prove you're the smartest person in every room. Because, first of all, you're most likely not, and certainly not about everything. And most especially not about the things you really most need to know, which is the appreciation of the other's point of view. You have to gain that if you're going to be effective in persuasion. So careful listening and attending to the other's point of view would be another guiding principle that I would say uh, after uh, the core idea of integrity and honesty. And then uh, once you 
can think about what you are trying to accomplish uh, from the vantage point of uh, a factual and honest foundation and a genuine uh, openness and hearing, astute listening to others, then there's the challenge of integration, synthesis, development of your ideas with others. And if you, again, don't feel it's necessary to get all the credit for the idea, you're much more likely to have people like the idea. Uh, and that's another principle. Don't worry about the credit. So, uh, if you start with those three, I would say it's a pretty good start for guiding principles. Those are great. Um, I would summarize them as integrity. You said that. Probably empathy is the second one, right? Yeah. Because when you listen, you're able to put yourself in the place of those who will be affected by your decisions. Yeah. And then uh, the third one is generosity, the ability to, to, to share, and e e even in the credit. And, mm. uh, and it, it's, it's a nice um, notion that while you do that based on the evidence, adherence to those principles also makes the emotional connection that surrounds decision-making so much more powerful. Yeah. Um, so great wo words of wisdom. Um, let me open it up for questions from uh, our audience and see who wants to. Um, I'm, I'm sure they've been listening very well uh, <laughs> to what you said. Um, so Walter Willett, please. Yeah, thanks for joining us again, Harvey. And um, I did have a chance to study you for quite a while is when you were dean and I was department chair here. Uh, and uh, in fact, I did, I think, learn quite a bit about decision making. And I was going to raise the point, but in fact, you did say it, that I, I never got a sense of persuasion when you were here. You're trying to persuade us about anything. What my, my lesson was listening. Uh, and it, it was really an interesting process whereby you did listen, and then at the end, you almost didn't have to persuade anybody who had heard them, and the, the answers seemed to flow out of that in a way that uh, was, was then, I think, wise and, and acceptable. So I just want to thank you for that. Well, thank you, Walter. If I had known that, I'd have called on you sooner. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really it's nice to see you and wonderful to hear. You know, sometimes uh, it does fall out naturally, and other times there's a, there's a real contention. I can remember when we were debating, and you were uh, part of this discussion in the faculty. I remember when early on we were debating uh, tobacco research. Do you remember those debates in the faculty? This was a very, now it seems in retrospect kind of obvious, but I can tell you when I began as dean, this is how ancient it is, we still had smoking in our facilities. Uh, we allowed smoking. If you can, a school of public health and we allowed smoking. And we, uh, we actually uh, moved in a progression in those years. We had a year in which we had a smoking lounge, and then we had a year in which uh, we did permit people to smoke in private places, and then we eliminated smoking. So we did it gradually, but the real contentious issue was amongst a certain number of faculty who had accepted funding for research from the tobacco interests. It was not really the companies directly, it was something called the Tobacco Institute. It was direct funding by the companies. And it turned out 
really the motivation behind this was not that they were doing research on cigarettes or even on pulmonary function or anything connected directly to uh, cigarettes. They were maybe doing molecular biology or some other remote science. The purpose was that the Tobacco Institute wanted to be able to list these eminent scientists from different institutions whom they had funded without even indicating what the results would be. And so the question came up, uh, do you permit this research to go on? And the faculty who accepted this research basically argued that there were fewer restrictions, more support than they could get from government grants and certainly from foundations. So what was the problem? And that took persuasion. That was not just a matter of of uh, hearing everyone at the first instance and a good solution falling out. And it took time. Uh, and, and in a way, all of us thinking together in the different positions and uh, eventually uh, everyone who had that agreed that they would not continue it. But it was, uh, it was done by, uh, by honest dialogue. And it was a good example, but not that was easy. You know, um, uh, before uh, entertaining another question, just a, a little follow-up on, mm -hmm. on this, and maybe s uh, something you, you want to reflect more broadly. I mean, you, you were talking about the funding of research, and of oh. course, for us, that's uh, very, very prominent nowadays when we're dealing with the conse consequence of sequester and the difficulties in reaching agreement on funding of anything, including yes. research. And it strikes me that, you know, the probably as I was listening to you, the three principles that you very eloquently, you know, of always telling the truth, listening, uh, reminded me of the, some author who said, you know, there's an anatomical um, metaphor here that we should pay attention. We have one mouth and two ears. So if we keep that ratio, listen as, twice as much as you talk, you probably, but you, you, you look at that and then generosity, the, the capacity to share in credit. Those two principles don't seem to be guiding decisions on public funding of science today in Washington. Uh, and um, what, what are your thoughts about, you know, no one would now think of going back, obviously, to, to the tobacco uh, industry at all. I mean, you know, time has proven that your decision was ac actually quite right. And, and but, but what's the future of funding uh, 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 for research, um, especially if the uh, difficulty in making decisions in Washington when it comes to the allocation of public funding for research um, means that you know, universities and other places need to look for, for alternative sources. What are your reflections on, on what's going on in the current climate around funding for research? Yeah. Well, first, we have a very difficult uh, overall political climate in Washington, mainly because of polarization of extreme uh, views on, uh, on both sides, very much rigidity, a sense of, uh, of uh, antagonism rather than any sense of uh, joint common cause. So that's the, the foundation against which uh, you begin. Uh, historically, there's a long tradition in which research, and particularly biomedical research, has actually been supported uh, 
uh, generously across the political spectrum. It's not, it's not been a partisan issue. And so if there's any uh, kind of glimmer of hope around the research enterprise, it is its breadth of appeal, the range of uh, appeal for research, the conviction uh, of the benefits of research uh, across uh, a wide range of uh, political views on other topics. So that, that is a, a, a plus. But in the current climate, everything, uh, whether it's uh, biomedical research or even the defense establishment, is, is suffering from a, uh, a reduction in, uh, in overall funding. Personally, if you ask me, well, what, uh, what needs to be done specifically on research, my, my own preferred uh, solution, which is admittedly, um, you could say, politically far-fetched, but really, I believe research should be treated on a three-year rolling uh, uh, budget basis so that you don't have this annual seesaw in which there's uh, abundance or famine uh, all uh, unpredictably coming along on a sudden basis. But rather, uh, you could allow every year a budget to be allocated, but it would be, in effect, the third or fourth year hence, so that there would be a guaranteed line of funding for a period of time. What research really needs, I believe, is, this, is the stability and security of its, of its trajectory, then allowing uh, within that more flexibility for allocation choices uh, of uh, investment where uh, new fields are emerging or where the needs and opportunities may be greatest. Uh, we had uh, someone, I believe, uh, put forward a suggestion, I will say, just as it is, that uh, biomedical research in the United States could be regionally distributed and allocated on that basis. Uh, that seems to me a wrong-minded way to think about it. Uh, I do believe that uh, we need to strengthen research in many uh, areas, but it's not purely by geography. It's by field, by geography, by investigators and more. And I think it would be wrong-minded to do that as a, as a kind of partial solution. The uh, prospects over time will depend on the longer-term prospects of improvement in the decision-making climate in Washington. And uh, it's hard to predict whether that uh, will occur or in what, uh, what time frame. Right now, we are in a very precarious position and particularly difficult for biomedical research. Any other questions uh, from, from the audience? Yes, please. My name is Zach Neider. I'm a first-year student in the master's uh, program in health policy management. Um, and my question is, uh, I've been reading a little bit about there's a kind of growing consensus that uh, oftentimes when we make decisions as human beings, our first reaction is kind of emotional, and then the reasoning sort of catches up and oftentimes really just justifies that in initial emotional response. And that would seem to be posed difficulties for public health in which oftentimes the issues are emotional, but we want people to act rationally to look at the evidence. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to, in terms of persuasion that you discussed earlier, kind of methods for appealing to people to focus on the non-emotional response to, to difficult decisions. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you, Zach, for your question. Uh, 
Your main point is, uh, is one that some very thoughtful uh, analysts uh, would, would agree with. I, I had the opportunity to uh, hear Daniel Kahneman, the, the psychologist who was awarded a Nobel Prize for his pathbreaking work uh, related to what is behavioral economics. He received the economics Nobel Prize. Uh, and as a psychologist, he had spent his uh, career really studying how people really make their decisions. And uh, he, he wrote a book uh, called Thinking Fast and Slow, which uh, uh, was uh, recognized by a, uh, an award given by our National Academy's Keck Futures Initiative. And at the ceremony where he was receiving this uh, award, he made an observation which was very much in line with your observation. He said that many of us like to think that people use the evidence to then make a decision or a choice. He said in his view most often it's inverted that people have come to a conclusion or begin with a choice and they then recognize the evidence which supports uh, their choice. Now if that is the case for most choices and decisions we really do have a challenge in public health where we are uh, trying to inform and, uh, and to alter perceptions and understanding. Uh, I think a first lesson for us in the main is that we cannot expect overnight results. If we're in the field of public health, you had better be in for the long haul because it's not a short-term quick fix. You have to stay with it. Uh, look at the tobacco question again. Uh, it took decades since the first Surgeon's General report in uh, the mid-1960s, at which time tobacco was at a peak in use in the U.S. It took a long time before the laws, the culture, the expectations, and then individual behavior all caught up. It's mostly now no longer acceptable to assume that when you visit a friend that you can just light up in their house. I mean, I think almost no one in today's culture <laughs> would even imagine doing that uh, without in the minimum asking or most likely just presuming they'd better excuse themselves and go outside if they're still addicted to tobacco. And in a way, that cultural change took place because of evidence and especially also sidestream smoke and secondhand effects. But evidence was the foundation, cultural change, cultural dynamics, uh, and individual education, medication, all played a part. And I think for most of the changes, the fundamental changes, whether we're talking about lifestyle choices or habits or diet, the nutrition, any of the things that we know over time would have a profound effect in the population, they all take time. And uh, we have to adopt a recognition that it's a combination of cultural underpinning, individual education, incentives, laws, regulation, repeated information, all contributing to that kind of a change. And elsewise, I think uh, we don't have any chance of succeeding. Great. Please. Uh, my name is Shane Curtin. I'm a first year in the two-year health policy and management program as well. Similar to Sack's question, actually, 
and on the synopsis that Dean Frank mentioned, the, the whole idea of empathy, generosity, those issues, how do you balance them? And I'd be really interested to hear an example from yourself with an ethical dilemma that conflicts with those sort of fundamental values. I'd be good to hear your own experiences. Uh, with an ethical dilemma that conflicts with, with uh, generosity and empathy. empathy. Ah, that's an interesting challenge. Um, well, I, it's true there are some people it's very hard to be repeatedly generous with. Uh, <laughs> I will say that. Uh, you know, when you're a dean, uh, you don't always see everyone at their very best. Uh, <laughs> so there is, there is that. Uh, so that's a, that's a test. But I, uh, you're thinking of, a, you'd like to maybe hear of a case where there was a tension here between the, the two. Uh, well, I will give, I will say where we had to induce generosity. We had a, we, like every school, maybe every year you feel this a degree, but some years it's worse than others, we had financial difficulties. Now, what did that mean? It meant that there was a dip in our, or at least a slowing down of our pace of, of, uh, of research and uh, financing. Uh, and uh, we, we didn't want to uh, do more on tuition because we already wanted to have a balance of tuition scholarship monies, and so that wasn't open so good, so well to uh, change, and we were in a very tough financial uh, year. And uh, this wasn't so much requiring generosity on the part of the dean, but it did require uh, a sense of solidarity and generosity on the part of the faculty and staff, because what we came to was a decision that we would all delay any change in our adjustment in our salaries for uh, at least a semester and then reassess the situation. Now we were able to do that uh, and really get pretty uniform agreement about it, even though none of us liked it, because uh, everyone could examine the facts and think about alternative choices. And it was uh, evident when you really boiled it down that this was the least bad way and most fair way and most, uh, I'll say, socially uh, appropriate way for us to deal with the reality of the situation. And I was very proud of the faculty that they came to that uh, conclusion. Now, that wasn't exactly a conflict with generosity, but it required the in, induction of generosity of spirit because you could feel you were all in it together. And that was, uh, I think, a part of the, uh, the key to that, uh, that particular crisis as it, as it seemed at the time. Looking back, you say, well, uh, you know, no one, no one uh, changed, had to change their uh, place of living because there was a, a crisis or lost uh, any great material gain, but at the time it seemed pretty significant and, uh, and quite controversial, but, but it worked, uh, we worked its way through. Uh, when I'm in the, uh, in the case of uh, the current place that I am at the Institute of Medicine, uh, we often will produce uh, reports or recommendations that do not make someone happy. Uh, and 
that uh, occurs, I will I'll give you a, an example. After the, uh, after the enactment of the Affordable Care Act, there's provisions in the Act about the coverage of preventive services, which are very good, and all of us in public health like that. Uh, there are certain minimum requirements, but uh, there are certain questions that were left open. One of the questions that was uh, unsettled in the law was uh, what would constitute essential preventive services, particularly for women? And were there special needs that women had that ought to be recognized under the law? And so the Department of uh, Health and Human Services uh, asked the Institute of Medicine to assemble a committee to answer that question, which we did and which the committee did. And in their report, they recommended uh, eight or so uh, special preventive and, uh, and clinical services that should be covered as essential services uh, for women, including uh, contraception and abortion. The secretary received this report and uh, adopted it and said, issued the regulations to say that the, uh, the uh, law now or the regulations for insurance should require that they include contraception and abortion. There followed a bit of a stir. Uh, and in particular, uh, the government is still under suit by the Catholic Church uh, about the requirements to cover uh, women for these services. Now, the government made some adjustments. It said if you are the, if you are the church, if you are a religious uh, entity that has these uh, beliefs, you do not have to provide this uh, coverage. As employees, if you're an employee of the church itself, you don't have to cover. So then the opponent said, well, what about the uh, employees of church-affiliated organizations, the universities like Notre Dame or uh, hospitals that are church-affiliated. What about those employees? And there the government first said, well, no, they, they still have to be covered. And then it came back and said most recently, uh, the insurers have to cover them, but the employer does not have to explicitly include that in the insurance that it provides. So it pushed the responsibility uh, up a level to the insurers. Uh, thus far, uh, that's not proved completely uh, ameliorating of the problem. It's still uh, under active uh, suit, and we'll see how that plays out. But there's a case where you might say there's a real contention of values. Uh, in the instance where the Institute of Medicine did the work, it was all in the uh, in, in the view of the, of the committee and of the institute, based on evidence about, uh, about clinical needs and consequences. But it does have a value con uh, a controversy attached to it, and it's a very uh, contentious issue even uh, to this day. Uh, I can give you another ex examples where, uh, in a way, it's easier because it's not so much values, it's wrong-mindedness that's uh, in the opposition, but we had for example, studies uh, that were chaired by Dr. Marie McCormick here at the Harvard School of Public Health and Harvard Medical, but she chaired a series of studies on uh, the uh, safety uh, of vaccines. 
And uh, those studies, uh, which found some uh, areas of risk, also dealt specifically with the question of autism. Uh, and that report, which was the last in a series, uh, the committee essentially reported that uh, it could find no evidence based on good studies that would connect either the vaccines or uh, a preservative that's uh, in the vaccines to the uh, development of autism. Now the reason that uh, it's in the minds of people that there could be a connection or in some minds that there is because the age at which you develop uh, first symptoms of autism is typically also an age at which you're receiving immunizations. So there's a natural connection. And there were members of Congress, uh, one grandfather in particular, who was absolutely persuaded that his grandson developed autism, which was just a month after an immunization, thinking that uh, it had to be the immunization. Well, uh, this, this continues as a controversy. It was a very contentious uh, period. It still co crops up from time to time. Uh, but uh, it's an easy one, easier for me because the evidence is all you have to go by. So uh, you can try to be empathetic and you do want to know and understand why people feel this way. If you're interested as uh, uh, Zach is in public health uh, effectiveness, you have to understand why people do not accept vaccines. And you have to understand how you can reach them and what would be persuasive and what would be uh, useful in, uh, in enabling them to do the right thing for their children. Uh, but this is a case of controversy, but not grounded in values problem, really more in uh, a failure to accept uh, the preponderance of evidence. We actually had um, um, a forum here on the question of vaccine safety. Marie McCormick was here among, mm. among others. And uh, I think it does illustrate that two of those components of decision-making can actually clash. I mean, when the emotions actually get in the way of the rational side. Yes. Uh, whereas, you know, probably the enlightened way is when you, you, you use the emotions to leverage the right decision based on, deci on, on, on evidence. But this is an example where they actually uh, uh, conflict. Yeah. Uh, or whether when, you know, as in the case of the essential services for women, when, when you actually have different value sets, which I think was the sense of the, of the question. What I, um, and, and I think, you know, understanding the, again, emphasizing the empathy side is, is, is crucial. But what came clear in, on that discussion on, on vaccines is also how other actors may exploit that situation to uh, actually generate systematic doubts about science. And it's, it's, it's a topic we, we recently had a, a discussion also on, on some of the con controversial findings on, on, on the effects of obesity and, and things like that. Of course, the tobacco companies exploited that, the, the, uh, the idea of uh, inconclusiveness of, yes. of research. This, and, and, and it's when it gets then exploited to deliberately uh, misguide people that I think uh, we're talking of a, <laughs> of a different set of situations. Yes. Well, you know, if you have, uh, as we have in the world, interests that are at stake, and I mean not just uh, values and beliefs, but financial interests, commercial uh, needs, uh, imperatives for uh, retaining power or achieving some other goal that uh, individuals or companies or uh, institutions represent, 
then uh, you have distortions naturally being introduced in the question of, uh, of uh, evidence. And indeed, uh, we have to recognize in ourselves how our own goals and desires and values shape our perception of evidence. I, I don't want to just pick on tobacco, but there's such a <laughs> big target, you know. Uh, but I can remember so vividly watching in, with kind of my mouth agape at the testimony when the uh, presidents of the tobacco companies were called before the Congress. And one after another, they were asked, you know, do you believe that tobacco is an addictive substance? And each of them said, no, you know, no, 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 no. I mean, right down the line. And, you know, you, you, uh, you just wonder what planet do the companies operate from that they could be so insulated from the evidence? Uh, do they believe that, the, that tobacco causes cancer? You know, even that, they couldn't quite bring themselves to acknowledge publicly. Uh, and then, of course, if you did, uh, how do you sleep at night? Or how do you live with yourself if that's, you know, what your goal is to purvey a product that uh, used as intended, kills people. Uh, so uh, that's a pretty tough thing to uh, reconcile in one's own mind. So, so you have, you, it's obvious in others, but it's very hard to recognize in ourselves when our own beliefs and convictions are conditioned in, in analogous ways to what we value and what we, we hold uh, close to us. So. In a way, I think it's not to divorce ourselves from our values. It's to try our best to uh, adhere to the right values. And then our beliefs and our convictions get guided by what's good and what is true rather than by what is just in our own or someone else's interest. Right. It comes down to the first of your principles so. of integrity. I mean, yeah. the only way you preserve is if you develop the reputation that you're a person who actually tries to tell the truth, yeah. um, no matter how many other elements go. But that, that's the, the longer-term uh, asset that we need to build in public health. Yeah. Another question. I am Julieta Coro. I am a fourth-year medical student at UCSD. I'm currently in a one-year master's program in policy and management. Um, not to hamp on the tobacco stuff, um, I worked uh, with a U.S. congressman on FDA regulation of tobacco, and that actually landed me here to want to study policy and management. But one of the questions um, that sort of resonated in my mind when you talked about these guiding principles of integrity, empathy, and generosity is sort of the role of mentorship and um, identifying key leaders throughout your experiences and what is the sort of best way to teach um, leadership because that's sort of the thing that I'm thinking about I'm gonna leave here I'm gonna go back and really how do I take these principles and really put them to action as well as identify mentors um, that could sort of um, provide advice as well as um, provide some of their own personal experiences as well so I wonder if you can highlight who those people were and how you identified those yeah. throughout your career well, I was, uh, I was very fortunate uh, in my life to have a number of people that uh, I looked up to and from whom I, uh, from whom I learned a lot. Uh, I, I think I mentioned uh, my father's saying about uh, learning only when you're listening, and so that, that was uh, a very important figure uh, for me, but also many of my teachers uh, uh, along the way from every, every stage of school. I can identify things that even now I 
connect to um, more emotionally than intellectually. One thing that I, I will say, and I don't know if it's true for your experience, but if you think back to the moments that were very special uh, in your interaction with a teacher uh, or a mentor, very few of mine were part of the formal classroom experience. Almost everyone I can think of was incidental to the main thing you thought you were doing, which was sitting in class learning and interacting in class. It, it was something outside of that or in addition to that. So one key I would say is to, if you want to be a teacher who is, is teaching, be available and be available in ways that are not just through the conventional ways. Uh, and then I think uh, you just have to model what you're trying to teach. So if you are the mentor and the leader that you're trying to teach people to be, that's the best way. Because they'll learn more from observing you and wanting to emulate you than they will <clears throat> from what you'll tell them. We have time for uh, a couple of questions, so we'll go there and then... Hi, uh, my name is Gary. I'm a one-year MPH program in healthcare uh, policy. I would like to just ask if you could share an experience in your career where you had made a wrong decision and share some insights, you know, your insights. Why do you think uh, people make wrong decisions and, and what we can do about it? Okay. Um, <laughs> You know, it's, uh, I'm thinking of, a, I, I was uh, thinking of a book called Being Wrong uh, by uh, Catherine Schultz. And it's a wonderful book. And she writes, how does it feel to be wrong? And her answer is, it feels exactly like being right. What feels bad is recognizing that you were wrong. That's what feels bad. Uh, so when did you recognize that, uh, that uh, you were wrong? Uh, well, I have, uh, I've made some uh, errors, uh, certainly. I would say some usually uh, inadvertent. I mean, an error is often inadvertent. Uh, oftentimes, for me, it's been in uh, dealing with, uh, with people. I can remember when, I'll give you a tiny example that illustrate a bigger problem. When I first became the dean, uh, announced as the dean, before I became dean, one of the uh, staff with whom I'd been working for years as a faculty uh, came up uh, to me sort of in the hall and said, now that you're going to be dean, can we still call you Harvey? And I thinking, you know, I knew her really well and I was uh, just think, thinking I'd make a joke. I said, well, as long as it's Dean Harvey. <laughs> and I could see all, that her face dropped, you know, I, I, and she felt like, oh my gosh, she'd made some terrible blunder. And it took me about three days to reassure her that, you know, it really was okay to call me Harvey. Well, that's a trivial example, but I, I've, uh, I've insulted people inadvertently uh, along the way. Uh, and, you know, it's, uh, it's very, you have to, when you're in a leadership position, uh, you really have to remember that it's a lot harder for whoever is there with you than it is for you. And uh, what you say can be construed in a hurtful or uh, misinterpreted way very, very easily. So I would say I've made mistakes by inadvertently uh, insulting or, uh, or uh, causing pain for people. And 
I, I really try to recognize that and fix it. Well, we'll go with Natalie and then Uchina, and then we'll have to wrap up. So, Natalie, please. Thank you so much for your insight. My name is Natalie Myers. I'm a second year Master of Science in the Global Health and Population and also the President of Student Government. So as you've heard, uh, Dean Frank is really big on trying to teach the future public health leaders. And so I'm just wondering from your perspective, and there's a lot happening at HSPH right now around changing the curriculum and what's the best way to create leaders and to educate leaders. So just wanted to hear a bit from you on what some of your advice would be for future leaders academically as well as experience. Well, Natalie, the fact that you're the president of student government is a great example of what I would say because I would say if you want to learn to be a leader, be a leader. And being a leader doesn't mean you're the dean or the chairman uh, of a department or uh, the head of a, of a center. A leader means that you are bringing the best out of your colleagues. It means that you are putting forward a vision of what the group or the team should accomplish and listening. It means that you're the one who is willing to do more than your share. It means that you are the one who is able to articulate on behalf of the group what the sentiment of the group is. It means that you're the one who can get people to do more than they thought they could accomplish because you're modeling it. So my ad advice, if, if you want to learn to be a leader, just be a leader. Be a leader at progressively more and more challenging positions. That's, to me, how you learn to be the leader you want to be. And it sounds to me like you're off to a good start. <laughs> <laughs> so we heard first from you, Gina, so you'll have the last question. Thank you very much, and thank you, Dr. Feinberg. Um, my question is around um, the role of bias in decision making. Um, many of us have heard stories or read studies about patients who present for care. Um, with the exact same symptoms, but based upon their race um, and their gender, they may get um, referred for cardiac catheterization less than other patients. And so my question to you is, how do medical education and um, public health training teach individuals, future physicians, future public health providers to limit, if not eliminate bias from their decision-making processes such that no matter which individual or community is before them, their decisions are based upon integrity, evidence, empathy, and generosity. The first key, I believe, is you have to expose and recognize the biases, the prejudices, the preconceptions, all the things that actually enable most people most days to get through their lives in a simpler way. I mean, the reason we have these stereotypes and preconceptions is because they're very useful heuristics in managing your day. That, that's just a, a, a kind of human nature. But most of us don't realize the strength and depth that these preconceptions hold in our mind. So part of the answer, I think, is exposing them, airing them, discussing them. Uh, there's some wonderful uh, studies and tests now that you can do which show the kind of preconscious bias in terms of the speed of response and associations of words and images that can reveal the presence of unconscious biases, but then make them evident so that those of us who would go through a uh, test like that could actually see the quantitative 
evidence the undeniable reality of our own predisposition. So the start is exposure, discussion, and examination of the consequence. And then uh, I think that uh, you have to work at it. You have to actually work at it. You measure what is being done and you actually demonstrate the freedom progressively from these kind of uh, in constricting stereotypes and biases that, that inhibit optimal care. So that would be, to me, the key steps. Exposure, recognition, measurement, and uh, sticking to it. Well, um, uh, we could stay here for another hour just in this engaging conversation. I, I, I want to thank Harvey Feinberg for, you just had a, a, a display of everyone who knows Harvey um, appreciates the most, which is his wisdom. In fact, I think he is exactly the embodiment of those three things, uh, integrity, empathy, and generosity. In, for many, many years, every time I have to make any professional decision, I always talk to Harvey, and you have seen why, because he is not just a person who has studied uh, decisions and has made decisions, but who has been incredibly generous. And since he's back in his school, I want to say that almost every good thing you see around the school, including the piano, <laughs> came from wise decisions from Harvey Feinberg. So I want to thank him very, very much for being back here with us. And I want to thank all of you for being uh, such a wonderful audience with such fantastic questions. Thank you. Thank you all. This has been a production of Decision Making, Voices from the Field at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. We encourage you to share decision-making voices from the field.